What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not know, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. I hope that this morning you brought your theological floaties, because we are jumping into the deep end of Romans. Uh, Romans 7, verses 7 to 25 are historically some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. And when you come to them, you oftentimes, if you're reading commentaries and others who are trying to explain these verses, find yourself feeling a little bit like Sherlock Holmes. You're, you're kind of looking at the, the evidence in the text to try to understand the answer to this one important question, who is this I that is speaking throughout? Now you'll notice that Paul, he, he's shifting pronouns throughout Romans, talking about uh, us and we, uh, they and them, and, and here when we come to chapter 7, we find in verses, the verses that we're looking at this morning, uh, a long, a prolonged conversation where he is using all of these first-person pronouns, I this and I that, and as you study it, a lot of who exactly this is that's speaking. Now, we know it's Paul that's writing this, but who does Paul want us to think about as we're reading these verses. Now, there have been a number of answers given. Uh, in fact, in the list of articles that kind of came out, who it is that's speaking. So uh, one, one person, Dr. Tom Schreiner, who uh, I deeply respect, described this I as being a, a pre-Christian experience that's going on in these verses. Uh, Dr. John Piper then argued that it actually, he believes, describes every Christian's experience. Uh, and later, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote this uh, many years before, said, I think we're just asking the wrong question. Now, there are others who have said that this is Adam or Israel that Paul is speaking with the voice of. So as you, you listen, you might be thinking that everyone is looking at this same event from different perspectives and coming at different conclusions. It's almost as though they're viewing it at night, like a witness of a crime, and they didn't quite have their, their contacts on or their glasses on, and it's just sort of fuzzy. But what I hope to do over the next two weeks is, is show that Paul's use of the eye here is actually, it, it, it's, I think, something that we can grasp a hold of. Now, it is okay if others disagree. We can have these conversations later. But what I hope to show over these next couple of weeks is that the eye that is speaking is Paul. He's speaking First, autobiographically, of his own experience. This is an experience that he himself has had. But then also, it is a paradigmatic experience that every human experiences. 
So he is speaking of himself, but he's inviting those who are reading to understand that, hey, you too are in this text. This text is really about you, just like it's about me. Now, we begin with a past experience in Paul's life in verses 7 to 12 this morning. You'll notice that the, the whole section is just full of past tense verbs. It's speaking of a past experience. It's kind of like a Polaroid, the way that the language speaks. Do you all know what a Polaroid is? Sorry. I... So there used to be this camera that you would, before the iPhone, when there were cameras, and when you take the picture, it would just immediately pop out this physical copy of a picture. And, and that's really what the, the language of verses 7 to 12 give us. It's this sort of snapshot of an event in the past. Well, verses 14 to 25, you'll notice if you were to read down through those, we'll get through those next week, uh, they shift to a present reality. But, but today we are in this past experience. Now, one author looking at these verses that we're looking at this morning says that they read like an epic drama that involves three actors. The law, the, the, the personified sin that is mentioned here, and the ego. Now, ego is just the Greek word for I, the I that's used throughout. And thus far, Paul has spoken of the law as aiding and abetting sin. So, not quite what your typical Jew of the day would have expected. Paul says that the law has actually served sin in some ways. All throughout Romans, just two verses ago, you'll remember in Romans 7, 5, that Paul explained that the pre-Christian experience was experienced such that the law aroused our sinful passions before he entered into a discussion of the, the age of the Spirit. Now here again, Paul has been preaching the gospel for about 25 years. And so he anticipates people who would have intentionally or unintentionally twisted what he said to mean something different than what he meant. And so as we come to it this morning, we find that, that Paul is again answering a question or a charge that he expected to arise from Romans 7, 5. And the focus of this section, I believe, if you're trying to track where he's going with this, is not so much on talking about the goodness of the law, though he does that. But his focus is really on the badness of sin and the way that it works internally in our heart mechanisms. Here we find sin pictured as a slumbering monster that awakens to devastate and destroy Paul. Now our big idea is this. If you're writing, taking notes, a great thing to write down. Our big idea is this. The law exposes my deep need for Jesus to save me from my sinful desires. The law does that. It exposes my deep need for Jesus to save me, not just from external enemies, but from my very internal sinful desires. Now we see this first in verses 7 and 12, where Paul assumes the goodness of the law. He assumes it. Now here's the irony. Jews of Paul's day assumed that God gave the law to rein in, to curb, stop and squelch sin. And yet here we find that, that Paul understands, understands that the law actually aroused sin. The Jews of the day thought that the law could give, would give life, not death. But Paul said that the law aided and abetted sin 
ultimately resulting in the death of every human. So, so a Jew would have said, this, this does not seem to be the way that the Bible speaks of the law. Now, if this happened today, some of Paul's listeners, I think, would have been on Facebook and Twitter, blasting Paul, taking him out of context, saying, this guy says the law is sin. Hasn't said that, but they've assumed that that's what he means. So Paul takes the question head on in this first part of Romans 7. Notice in Romans 7, 7, he asks this question, like he's been doing throughout, clarifying questions. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? And then that common response, by no means. See, Paul still has the law of Moses in view. Uh, you can see that by the, the fact that, and just a, a verse later, he's going to bring up the 10th commandment on coveting. And to those who charge Paul with saying that the law is sin, he responds with his common response to those wrong-headed notions and conclusions that those other people have been having about what Paul has been describing. He says, by no means. No way, Jose. The, the law is not sin. Now, some think Paul's main point in Romans 7 is to argue for the goodness of the law, and he, very, he, he, does. he does. He talks about the goodness of the law. But I think it actually appears that Paul assumes the goodness of the law is axiomatic throughout. Now, here's what I mean. That's a big word. Word of the day, axiomatic. It is an assumed kind of truth. It is unquestioned. So, for instance, we have all kinds of axioms. The, the sky is blue. The Phoenix Suns are currently the best team in basketball. And the law is good. Maybe not all equally axiomatic. But you can see this in the way that Paul reaffirms the law in verse 12. So this section begins with the law is good, and it ends with the declaration of the goodness of the law. And it's in between that he's explaining, I think, the substance of what he wants to get at. Notice what he says in verse 12 as he goes on. He says this about the law. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, both the law collectively and individually in the form of these commandments. Paul says it's a very good thing. In fact, I believe that this description that he gives in verse 12 is Paul affirming the way that Moses viewed the law. In fact, Mark Seifred, a scholar who was studying this text, sees Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8, behind these words of Paul in 7.12. It's there that you'll find in Deuteronomy 4 that God commands Moses to speak to his people, telling them that if they follow the law, it would lead to life. And in verses 5 to 8, he says this, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding and the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes, these laws that I have given you, my word, they will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God 
is to us whenever we call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules? So righteous is all this law that I have set before you today. Moses seems like he has a pretty positive view of the law, right? God has a positive view of the law. And here's the point. I think Paul affirms the goodness of the law at the beginning and the end of this section as self-evident. Paul shares the view of Moses and of Paul. He's not apologizing for the goodness of God's law to his people. Now, can I just ask you this morning to do something that might sound a little strange, but could you, would you be willing to talk to yourself for just a second? And, and here's what I mean by this. Would you be willing to engage with yourself in what we might call some rhetorical questions? So the first question is this. I'm going to ask myself, hey, Josh. Now, don't call yourself Josh unless your name's Josh. Use your same name. Hey, me. Are you with Paul, Moses, and God in seeing the law is holy, righteous, and good? If you read the New Testament, you'll see that it clearly affirms the rightness of keeping nine of the Ten Commandments. You're like, nine of the Ten? What about the Sabbath? Well, it tells us that Christ fulfilled the Sabbath rest and invites us to enter in through Him. So we can see that it's a good thing to keep the Ten Commandments in Christ. The law is a good thing in the New and the Old Testament. And the resurrected Christ Himself commanded us in Matthew 28, verse 20, as, as He is about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, what He tells His disciples is to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So here's the question, me. Do, do I see obedience to God as liberating, as life-giving, as hopeful, as joy-inducing? Or me, do we see God's will for us, for me, as cruel, sad, hopeless, enjoy killing. Which is it? Do you believe that holiness leads to happiness and that sinfulness leads to sadness? Or have you bought the lie of this fallen world that if you really want to find happiness for yourself, then you can do it on your own apart from God better than your Creator God has created you for? It's just a question, a series of questions. Where do we stand in our understanding of the law? Have we bought the world's understanding an expression, and an emotion towards the law, or have we listened to God? Here's another question that you can ask yourself. Hey, me, do you see how God's specific commands really are good for you? Not just in general, in the heart of God, but the specifics of them. Have you thought about this? Like sometimes you're like, oh, the law makes me feel burdened. And then you're like, have you thought about the law? I mean, take for instance the Eighth Commandment, not to steal. Like, you shouldn't steal, others shouldn't steal. People should not take your stuff. I'm kind of for that, right? Like, I'm more for people not taking my stuff than me not taking their stuff, probably, than I should be. But God tells us not to take other people's stuff. God tells us that He cares about other people not taking our stuff. The God who created the universe with more stars in the heaven than we have 
sands on the seashore cares about the little kid who goes to school and finds a big kid who intimidates him and beats him up and takes his lunch money and his iPod. God cares about that. He cares about stealing. He cares about injury and harm, about protecting the weak. God cares about the Wall Street baron who cheats people out of their life savings. God isn't sitting idly by, not caring. His law says, I care. I care about the details of your lives, that you treat others with the kind of dignity that I've created them to receive. The law reveals the heart of a transcendent creator who stoops down as a declaration that he cares about his creatures. He cares about me. Isn't that amazing? Me. And hey, me, imagine a world where God says that the opposite reigns, where he says, I don't need to be your exclusive God. I don't care that much about you. Worship whatever you want and all of those ways that lead to death. You're free to sacrifice your children if you like. You're free to build more idols that demand you to work yourself to death. You're free to hit your mom and to murder those who refuse to give you what you want. You can lie to get your way. You can steal and dream about taking people's other stuff. That sounds like the kind of civilization that I don't want to live in. Now here's the second question. Or here's another thing that we see here. Paul's not arguing against the goodness of the law. Important to note. He assumes it. Now, the reason I had to go through that whole questioning that's going on like in your heart this morning is because I'm not sure that all of us assume the goodness of the law as Paul would expect us to. Do you assume it? Paul does. Now, the question here is why the arrival of the law was met with an ever-increasing heart to disobey it. Why does the law and that inner longing for sin, why did they show up at the same time? I mean, if I'm at a party and the law and an increasing desire to sin show up at my doorstep at the same time, I might think that they're really good friends. But don't miss this. They're not friends. Sin uses a good thing in a bad way. And as Will Timmons says, Will Timmons in his monograph, he says this, really good point. Paul's purpose within the wider context is not to give an apology for the law, but to demonstrate its powerlessness to bring life. That's what he's wanting us to see here. He wants us to understand the law cannot bring the life that you need. It exposes the problem. So second, we see this being worked out in the second half of verse 7. The law revealed sin. That's what Paul says. N notice as I read verse 7b again, that Paul is assuming a time prior to the Mosaic law arriving on the scene. Now, let me make a couple of quick observations, because this is tough. First, I take it here that Paul describes his coming of age as a Jewish man, where he would have understood the law and first connected his desires to obey the law as actual disobedience against God. Uh, th this would have, I'm taking it, taking part, taking place at, at puberty or maybe around his bar mitzvah. Like, it, there's just this it's not that sin or the law didn't exist. It's that all of a sudden he had this 
greater uh, experience of understanding the fact that if he sinned, he was sinning against God's law. Second, the language here harkens back to Adam and Eve's sin back in the Garden of Eden, as well as to Israel's breaking of God's commandments and law. So if you're reading this, and others have read this and seen Adam and Israel here, I think they're here. I just think they're in the background. I think Paul's talking about his experience using language that says, my experience is like Israel and Adam. So I think, and I take it, that he's connecting with the experience of Adam's breaking God's commandments and with Israel and himself. All right, so now, look at verse 7 again. We're ready. Verse 7, here's what he says. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Let me make clear what Paul is not saying here, because this might be taken the wrong way. Paul's not saying that sin did not exist before the law. Romans 5.13 says sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Paul's also not saying that people were not aware of or accountable for sin before the Mosaic law showed up. We've already seen in Romans that, that that's not true. Now we see in this reality the fact that the just consequence of sin is death. We've seen that throughout. Death, people die because sin is in the world. If sin had not been in the world, death would not happen. And because it is the universal experience of every human after Adam's fall, it shows that we are all under the power of sin. Now I take it that Paul's talking here about an increased awareness of the law that moves one towards transgressing God's clearly expressed law. This is bringing a new awareness of deeper and deeper issues of the heart as you are exposed to the law and realize that your heart is actually wanting something different. And notice, Paul quickly offers a really simple example. He says, let me show you how this works. Catch the 10th commandment. You remember that one, the one against coveting? Like, I want to I spend some time thinking about coveting. A very good place to begin if you're thinking about heart work. Now, what's fascinating is some have, have said that he chooses coveting because coveting was sometimes used as a commandment that represented the whole of the law. And I think that's probably going on, but he does use the 10th commandment, I believe, for a reason. I looked up for the word for covet, and it, it pretty much means what you would expect it to mean. Uh, this is what I found. It means a desire that often has its goal as the acquisition of something or someone that is visible. It is a kind of eye lust. You see something that looks good, and you want it. You see someone that looks good, and you want them. The same word that is used here for this coveting is actually used in Genesis before we have the law. It's a word that describes Eve, who was looking at the one tree in the garden of the many trees that God commanded Adam and her not to eat from. And we're told that as she's looking at it, she's looking at this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 3, 6 says the woman saw the tree. She saw it and it says it, it was a delight to the eyes. Something that God said was prohibited and bad for her. 
she looked at as good. And that tree was to be desired to make one wise. That word for desired is a word that is associated with that coveting word. And she coveted it to make her wise. Now, think about that. Satan deceived Eve into coveting the one tree that God commanded her not to eat from lest she would die. Eve had to swallow a number of lies before she took a bite of that forbidden fruit. A lot of lies about God. A lot of heart work had to take place before she actually sinned against God. And and maybe these are some of the kinds of lies that you have sensed your own heart preaching to yourself. These anti-gospels. Let me give you five real quick, and you can come up with more on your own with your family or in your community group later. But here's some of the lies. One, she had, to try, she had to buy that God is not trustworthy. God told me this tree is not good for me. She had to believe that there was a better word than the word of God. She had to believe that she could trust Satan's words and her own heart desires above the very clear word of God before she ever bit that fruit. Second, she had to believe that God was holding out on her. That there was good that she could have, that she ought to have, that God was just keeping from her. You ever felt that way before? The fruit of this tree that is prohibited must be sweeter. It must offer better promises than what God has for me, what he intends for me, what he promises me. Third, God is not enough. I mean, isn't that kind of at the heart of it? I mean, think about this. Who here today, if you had the opportunity, and you do, to enter into the Garden of Eden and live forever in the presence of your Creator, God, a presence full of love and peace and joy forever. Who would not today say, sign me up for that? And if you haven't come to Christ, I'd love to tell you how you can sign up for that. Who wouldn't? I'm not raising my hand because I wouldn't. Of course not. You know, Eve, she didn't just want to be loved by God in that moment. That wasn't enough. She wanted to be God. Four, I I can find more joy in disobedience to God than in obedience. You know, I, I would be happier in sin than I would be in holiness. That is a a lie from hell. It's a lie from Satan, from the very mouth of Satan. Fifth, I will not actually die if I disobey God. I will truly live. And she took a bite and she gave some to her husband and everyone after them died. See, Adam and Eve returning to the dust began with eye lust began with a coveting, desiring, not trusting God. See, Eve trusted the serpent and the fruit she could see with her eyes more than she trusted God from the heart, and that's the seed of sin. Now, let me get super practical here. Coveting is desiring something that disobeys God's word, and we live in what Carl Truman calls the age of the modern self. Great book, when he talks about, Carl Truman talks about this reality where our culture has dogmatized the freedom of self-expression 
as the ultimate value. It's like, it's like the, the, the supreme good for humanity that we can sort of treat ourselves like a canvas and make ourselves up into what, whatever it is that we dream. You know, the heart wants what it wants and all. We've been trained by poets and musicians, poets like Percy Shelley from a couple of hundred years ago, who saw Christianity as actually an enemy to our liberation. He said, you know, Christianity is actually, it is an enemy of you being the true you and all the joyous felicity that you could be. It is hindering you from happiness. And now we live in the world that he envisioned over 200 years ago. You can be what you want to be. Self-expression is not making good on its promises, brothers and sisters. And that's a researchable truth. In fact, according to a 2019 study, this was published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, it was a study done between 2009 and 2017, they studied depression rates, and they found this, increasing depression in the place of all of our young people. 47% among young adolescents. That is, if I'm reading correctly, an increase of 47% of depression in 12 to 13-year-olds. I've got 12 and 13-year-olds in my house. I want them to experience joy. 60% among teens, 14 to 17 years old. 46% among young adults, 18 to 21 year olds. Our young people are depressed. Now here's what I think it's safe to say. The rise of self-expression and depression are at least parallel. The law shows us that we've been made for something different and something so much more. We were made for God, for His glory. And to bear His image, not just on earth, but according to Ephesians 3.10, you might not know this, but you have been made to make a powerful display of the power of the gospel that is so great that even heavenly intelligences, principalities and rulers in heavenly places, that's angels, I think, and demons, look on us with spellbound wonder at God's love for and redemption that is being poured out in the church. Sometimes our desires are wrong. Sometimes when we get the thing that we think will make us happy, we only end up sadder than we began. Has anybody ever found that? Every Christmas, Apple makes promises they do not deliver. Right? And so is the law the problem according to Paul? No, the law helps us see the problem. Catch this. Not all desire is bad. That's not what Paul is saying. Joy is not bad. God created that stuff for a purpose. God created us to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Something's broken when we're not enjoying God. See, God created a world full of sensual delight. And from my read of things, He has never apologized for that. God has never apologized for the majesty and glory and delight of His good creation. In fact, He begins His Word with rejoicing in how good what He made is. God never apologized for the beauty of a San Diego sunset. Now, I think that's the best thing California does. God's never apologized for it. I mean, how many of us and how many people from around the world descend on San Diego just to see the beach and the sunset and the sunrise. God never apologized for the delightful sound 
Don't you love it of your children laughing? Like, don't you just want to freeze those moments and replay it again and again? God never apologized for making that stuff. He never apologized for black cherry gelato. Had that for the first time this last Friday night. It's amazing. You should have some. God inspired that stuff. He made the stuff that his people that he made, like, worked with to make that stuff. Now, maybe I shouldn't have gotten a large gelato. That's another sermon. But when I took my wife, Gia, as my wife, I looked at her with spellbound wonder that such a sweet, godly, fun, beautiful woman would turn her affections to me and commit her life to me. And I know that God is pleased over my desire for her. He never asked for an apology for that. Now, that's not bad. Desire or coveting, those kinds of desire, those kinds of delight, those are the radiant beams of light emanating from the God of light with whom there is no darkness at all. It's, it's meant to cause us to worship him. Now, coveting means that God cares how you look at my wife and how I look at your wife. Every good gift comes to you from God, and coveting other people's stuff ultimately says you don't honor God and thank him for every good gift. See, Romans 1.21 says that is the heart of idolatry, that we do not honor God as God and thank him for all of his goodness to us. That's where it started. So you can see how coveting would be an important piece of that, uh, an important perversion of that thing that we were made for. See, a heart that covets other people's stuff is not trusting God for daily bread or thanking Him for His care for them. But notice in verses 8 to 11, Paul personifies sin. Now there we see, third, the law awakens sin resulting in desire, deception, and death. The law awakens sin resulting in desire, deception, and death. You'll notice that sin's actions in these verses, they look a lot like the actions of Satan in the garden. And this really is an epic story of desire, deception, and truth. Look what he says again. Chapter 7, verses 8 to 11. Paul writes, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So here we find that, that Paul envisions sin as a powerful monster that arouses disobedient desires in Paul. The heart does not simply want what it wants. We have sin that is actually causing us to desire things that are not internal to us, but, but is coming from a force from without. 
And Paul does not see his heart as free from devious deception. He, he doesn't say, like, if I could just get what I wanted, everything would be good. He says, I don't even know if I can trust what I want. Sin sees the opportunity through the commandment. Now, as you read the end of verse 8, you'll find that it's very similar to verse 5. The arrival of the commandment not to covet awakened sin from its slumber. Now this scene, it reminds me a lot of a scene from The Hobbit. Any of y'all seen the movie The Hobbit? You don't have to confess to have read it, but you, you watched the movie? Okay. Well, there's a scene in the movie. You'll remember that Bilbo Baggins, he's uh, actually going to Erebor, this mountain where inside there is a, a huge dragon that lives named Smog, and he is uh, living and protecting this massive hall of gold and treasure. And so he sneaks in, and he is trying to find this Arkenstone, but he knows that there is a huge fire-breathing dragon somewhere in this massive treasure trove. But when he shows up, he doesn't see him anywhere. He thinks maybe he's like off on a break or something. And so he's just kind of throwing gold around and having a good time. And all of a sudden, Bilbo accidentally awakens the smog who was asleep under the gold. And it begins to reveal his massive eye that stares at him. And he's terrified and he hides. And then the dragon, he arises to show him his size and his power and his strength. Now, the dragon was always there. He just didn't see him in the same way. But when he stood up, Bilbo Baggins was like, I just wanted to see if all the songs about you were true, if you're really as bad as they say you are. And he stood up and he says, oh, they underestimated. And they get the same picture with the nature of sin in Paul. As the law comes, he underestimated how sinful he really was. You'll notice in verse 8 that sin's awakening, it awakened and produced all kinds of covetousness in Paul. All kinds. Like it just wasn't one for one. It's like it just got crazy in there. And don't miss this. The law not only awakened sin and in turn showed Paul what sin was, sin used the law's commandment to arouse all kinds of sinful desires in Paul. As it said, you've probably heard this, Forbidden fruits are the sweetest. That is true according to a sinful desire. That is not true according to God's truth. But Paul, as a sinner, began to really live by forbidden fruit seems sweetest. It's what I want. It reminds me of the testimony of one of our brothers who... Uh, and I love, one of my favorite parts of being a pastor is being able to hear your testimonies of how you came to faith in Christ. Well, this one brother sh uh, shared the story of a business that one of the things they did was sold bikes. And during his testimony, he said some of his friends figured out how to steal bikes from his boss and then sell them to others. And he got really kind of excited about the whole like sort of way that they snuck in, stole them, covered it up, never got caught. But after he came to Christ, Many years later, the Holy Spirit convicted him that what he had done was sin and wrong. And he didn't just say, you know, I think now that I'm a Christian, that was when I was a non-Christian, I think we're good. The Holy Spirit so gave him a sense of the wrongness of it that he went back 
to his boss. And he determined to tell him and confess whatever the cost. And the cost could have been great. You know, his boss forgave him. It's not how the story always ends, but the boss forgave him. And that was a major part of his testimony, like coming to see the thing that before excited him now became the very thing that he felt he needed to confess and run from. That was not something that an external law did. That's something that the Spirit of God within him did. The Holy Spirit was able to do in this brother what the law could not, which is change his heart. See, the rebellion here at its root is knowing God's will and seeking to do that which is forbidden. This is self-worship rather than God-worship. This would have been radical to Jews listening in on Paul thinking that the Mosaic law was supposed to curb sin. Paul says, not only does the law not curb sin, it actually exacerbates it. It makes it worse. And that's when Paul experienced the inner workings of passions and desires of adults that began to, to show him how wrong his wants were. And when Paul became old enough to become aware of the law, sin was awakened and Paul died. Now, the word for transgression is not used here. But I think the idea is present. See, transgressions are sins that violate a clearly stated command of God. I don't think that's what he's trying to draw most focus to here, but that's happening. Transgressions, they are worse sins because uh, the rebellion is more overt. It's against something clearly that God has said is wrong. So verse 9 speaks of that time when Paul had yet to understand the law, really understand what God was saying. You'll notice that he was alive before that awareness of the commandment came and then sin came alive and Paul died. It's not saying that he was spiritually alive and then spiritually died. It's just speaking of a kind of way that sin lay, lay, lay dormant and then came alive. Paul was uh, dormant uh, or, or alive and then went dead. It was sort of a, the opposite. As sin came up, death came up. I take it that Paul here is describing his experience, as not as spiritual death, uh, as understood in light of the law. But he's using language that echoes Adam's death as a result of sin. He was already dead. But did you catch that great turn in verses 10 to 11? Look there. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Adam obeying the commandment in Genesis 2, it meant life. You'll live forever if you just obey me and eat from this tree and not that one. In Deuteronomy 4, God promised Israel life for obedience. But both Adam and Israel and later David disobeyed God and found themselves under death. But the law did not kill Adam in verse 11. It was sin that deceived Paul, and through that deception, killed him. So sin used the law to cause him to desire to sin all the more. It deceived him, and it brought about death. Sin here looks so much like Satan in the garden leading man to fall to death. Now, here's the question. If the law is good and intended to bring life, then how did Satan use it to bring death? Is the law broken because we broke the law? Well, the law actually points to our inability to save ourselves. And I think this is the same way that Jesus uses it in Mark chapter 7. In Mark 7, verse 20, 20 to 22, Jesus gives this parable. And he says that nothing that comes into man from the outside can defile him, but that which comes out of a person defiles him. And then he explains this, saying, 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting in verse 22, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And then in verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I take it that Paul, like Jesus, understands that the law is good for revealing both righteousness and unrighteousness. But the external law, those Ten Commandments, they are unable to make people who are sinners at heart righteous. We need Jesus and His Spirit to do that. So that when we come before the law, what we understand is, is what we have been created for, and we see that we are not working that way. We are broken. We are needy. And when we come before that law, what we are called to do is not look back to Adam who came before a tree and failed and sinned and left all to death, but look to that last Adam, Jesus Christ, who found himself before another tree, a tree of death, a cursed tree at Calvary, where he obeyed God even to the point of death, laying down his life for your sins, for my sins, so that we might be made right with God so that we might be made righteous with an alien righteousness that's not of ourselves. And so they might give us his spirit so that we can moment by moment, day by day, from one degree of glory to the next, be transformed into the image of that son that we were created to be. That's the gospel. The, the, the law should preach the gospel to us. Our need for something that we cannot do ourselves, but that has been done for us in Christ. Now, Christian, as we close, I just want to acknowledge uh, a couple of things, and, and I've got something for non-Christians as well. And here's, a, here's what I would say for Christians. I don't want us to leave thinking today that this was a past experience, that we no longer have sinful desires. And if we have sinful desires, it must mean that we didn't do it right. I'm not trying to encourage sinful desires or exploring those or anything like that. But there are some who say that when you come to Christ, you no longer have sinful desires. And I would say that this is a battle and a war for your soul that happens until Jesus comes back. And this is why we need to look for, wait, be faithful, and fight, looking for the day when Jesus comes back to set things right. They will not be right before then. We will be holier, but we will not be fully holy as he has made us until Jesus comes back. Christian, do you see God's revealed will for your life as better for you than your own desires? Do you see that? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Are you checking your desires with God's Word. Let me just encourage you, fight. Don't dabble in sin. Sin's desire is to deceive you and kill you. As James Owen, we, we, we often uh, quote John Owen's famous quote, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We need to be constantly at work about that. So how do you do that? You can kill sin by meditating on Christ and His Word, the Scriptures, like every day. Spend time in God's Word. Great way to kill sin confessing your sin to God, as 1 John 1, 9 calls us to, trusting, trusting and believing that God is fully able and willing and wants to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We need to pray to God, asking for help in His Spirit. We need to confess our sins to others. We need to not waste our time on meaningless things. And we need to be plugged into a local church that's holding us accountable. We need these things if we're serious about killing sin. A non-Christian, let me just ask you this morning, we've been thinking 
about how Paul views the human heart. I'm just curious, do you think that you are the only person that you can truly trust? That your desires have a godlike authority that is always true and truer than any other source of truth? What if your situation's worse than you think? What if you can't even trust yourself? I think that you know that you can't always trust your desires. Don't miss this. Only Jesus came to lay down His life to save sinners, to do the will of His Father. He is that new and better Adam who obeyed God for you where you could not obey yourself. Adam sinned at the tree and all people fell. Jesus obeyed God at the tree of Calvary and died so that you can have peace with God. And if you don't have peace with God today, it is yours to be taken if you'll put your faith in Christ. Don't leave without doing that. Let's pray.